You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome in to the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. It's Wednesday, which means we dive into the mailbag. You guys dictate where the show goes. It's been a while since we've done one of these. Uh, good time as ever to jump in and start doing this. Um, we've got a good amount of questions here with wide range of topics, pretty much focused on football. And I think it's because uh, we are starting to get closer and closer to football season. Eric and I will be at media day here in a couple of weeks. Uh, we will be gearing up for Oregon's media day, which follows that we've got Saturday Night Live, which is like the last big hurrah from a recruiting standpoint until the season starts. And then shortly after signing uh, after Saturday Night Live, Oregon opens up fall camp. So football is on the mind, Eric. Oh, 100%. I, I think we've reached that point here, and we're certainly seeing it on the site with the traffic perspective where the minds have sort of shifted from, hey, it's the offseason to, hey, we're getting really close to fall right. camp. And there just seems to be a lot of excitement. I think part of that also because of the recruiting successes. And Matt, I should say, I found a fifth question here. So you're going to be thrown one that you're not ready okay. for at the very end. So be ready for that. Um, but let's start today's show um, where you'd probably expect it to be with some recruiting and a question from at Jason Morris underscore 76. What odds do you give Oregon of landing Josh Connerly or Kevin Coleman? Are there any other five-star prospects that we should keep an eye on? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, Jason's question referring to probably the two five-star recruits that are most frequently linked with Oregon. Yeah. Um, you know, two guys that I think Oregon has a real shot for, um, you know, and, and the question here, Matt, of what odds do you give? Like I always struggle with how to answer those. I think you do too, in terms of like, I don't want to like give it percentage points or a scale of one to 10 or a letter or anything like that. Um, but I'll just say like, I think specifically with these two players, like I, I think Oregon is going to be in the mix to the very, very end for them. And do I think it's going to be a repeat of the 2020 cycle where Oregon lands three five-star recruits? Because Oregon already has one in, in 2022 in Kelvin Banks. Maybe, but I would probably feel pretty good about Oregon getting at least one of those two names. Um, do you agree, Matt? And then is there anyone else that we haven't discussed from a five-star perspective that, that you think is worthwhile? Um, I'll discuss the second part first. Other five-star names to kind of watch out for. Um, I, I struggle to find any, um, That to be honest with you, that yeah. like Oregon has a, a very serious, legitimate chance. Like there are a couple out there. I mean, they just offered Amari Aber, uh, defensive lineman from Duncanville High School. He's teammates with Cameron Williams, an Oregon commit. But, you know, like, I, I just don't feel like there's as many guys out there that are five stars that you can definitively say, like, Oregon at minimum is third. Right. Third, yeah. or, third or fourth in the running four. Um, I, I, I feel very good about Josh Connerly. Um, he's probably trending towards Washington um, or leaving the region entirely. And that's probably in part because Oregon landed Kelvin Banks. Um, they've got Kingsley on the team from last year's recruiting class. This year's, you know, they've also got Bram Walden from last year's recruiting class. And then this year, 
Um, they also have added uh, Cameron Williams, Percy Lewis, Michael Wooten. And while, you know, a five-star recruit is no offense to Percy Lewis, Cameron Williams, or Michael Wooten, he's not going to be concerned about a three-star player. Sure. Yeah. You know, that's, that's currently committed. But just look at it from a numbers standpoint. Well, they've already got Kelvin Banks. He's a five-star. Kingsley is – he's a five-star in our own ratings. The composite doesn't have him as a five-star. We'll, we'll call him a fringe guy. And then you look at Bram Walden, and you realize, oh, this is another guy that's uh, super highly – highly regarded a top 100 prospect in the country he's also an offensive tackle so how how realistically is it for me to to go to Oregon and tell myself I'm going to be a starter in two years like so I I think I think Oregon is they're going to be a player it got a little bit harder to get because of Kelvin Banks's verbal commitment um Kelvin uh Kevin Coleman um for a five-star receiver from St. Mary's High School in St. Louis uh he is the second best receiver in the country, the 19th best player in the country. I, I thought it was telling that Oregon took a verbal commitment from Isaiah Sitegna, um earlier this, this month because they're kind of the same player. They're both sub six foot. They're both track stars, elite speed. Um, obviously, Kevin Coleman is a take, but – if, if room is tight for all spots it would, and, and if you felt like you were a hundred percent confident, you were going to get Kevin Coleman, you probably at least see if Isaiah said taking that could maybe wait a little bit because now if you take Kevin Coleman, while it's a, it's a big deal, he's going to be, you know, both players will help you, but does that solve is that solve a need now? Cause like you needed speed at the receiver position. Um, does it make from a management standpoint, like a lot of people mock USC for signing tons of receivers and signing tons of cornerbacks every single year. And it's because they've, they, they've not allocated the, the proper number of scholarships for offense and defensive linemen. And they're just beat up in the trenches every year because they don't have the numbers. And that's kind of a at play now for Oregon here is, is, is the, the reward of, of landing a, a five-star receiver in Kevin Coleman. And I'm not saying like Oregon doesn't want him and doesn't, couldn't use him because they can, but is it better used to go out and sign two cornerbacks than and instead of signing one cornerback and adding another five-star receiver where, now you're devaluing the impact of, of some of your other receivers that you've added to the class. So I, I think Oregon's in a good spot for th- for both those guys, but I think the results that have happened the last couple of weeks from a recruiting impact for Oregon are probably going to make it a little bit harder for Oregon to bring these two guys in. I think the, the scholarship stuff is so interesting with these two players in particular because the two positions Oregon's addressed the most the last two cycles have been offensive line and, and wide receiver, and yet right. they're in a spot where they're in pretty good shape for two of the top players remaining at those two positions still. And, and I, I agree, Matt, in terms of like they're both takes, obviously. You don't turn down five-star players. That's just not a thing that happens. Either you make room or, or I, I hate to say, you push another player who's lesser rated out, and there are instances – at both position groups where there are three-star caliber guys at those spots that 
could in theory be pushed out. I don't think Oregon wants to do that. And frankly, you look at the players on the list who would be maybe the top, you know, the players that make sense in that kind of instance. And I don't think, I think both those, those kind of players are all pretty valuable to this class, whether it be from a recruiting other, a peer recruiting perspective or just a talent perspective. Like I think of a receiver like Stefan Johnson, I think that guy's pretty underrated and he's clearly a big part of what they're doing in Texas. So, um, you're right, Matt, in terms of like the numbers here don't make sense. I think obviously at the same time, a guy like Coleman, a guy like Connerly are, are players you'd love right. to take. And we heard a lot of positive things. I know specifically I, I heard some positive things with Coleman from how things took place after, you know, the last couple of weeks here. So uh, it's going to be fun to follow. And I think there, the fact that Oregon is in on some five stars as we go into the fall season and has a real shot with them just adds a little bit more of the intrigue and excitement um, surrounding recruiting as a whole as we I think kind of reach a stretch run here in the next couple of weeks where as we I think we discussed on our last show probably going to be a fair amount of, uh, of of activity here over the next couple of weeks and months as they try to get stuff sorted out before the season starts in September if both guys call and, and say hey we want to be ducks like Oregon's gonna do backflips in terms of excitement for <laughs> sure like yeah. Like and and like you said, like there's there won't be a second where Oregon hesitates to take their verbal commitments. Um, I just think the the fact that they've added another four star receiver that, that's very similar to Kevin Coleman, they've they've landed their five star in Kelvin Banks at offensive tackle, knowing you know, only two tackles can play a game. Three, you know, unless a guy gets hurt or really gets tired, it's it's three. And you, know, you you've gone out and you've gotten Banks and you've gotten Kingsley and you've gotten Bram and that doesn't account for any of the other offensive tackles in this class. It doesn't account for any of the other offensive tackles in the previous two classes. It's it's now getting to a number standpoint where not only is the the recruit probably loves Oregon, but it's also of hey let's be realistic here. Like I want to be off into the NFL in three or four years. Is that as is it as intuitive to do that at Oregon than it is to go to another school where maybe they haven't loaded up entirely like Oregon has along the offensive line? And I'm not saying that these guys are scared of competition because they're not, but it also it's a business decision. You have to look at it as like I want to go where the best players are are at, and I want to get developed and I want to get pushed, but at the same time, I also want to play. I don't want to I don't want to risk going to a school and being a backup for four years and getting one year of an opportunity to show who I am. And that year doesn't go right because of injury or because of scheme change, or uh, maybe, you know, your lack of reps hurt you and you need that, you know, that first year to get yourself, you know, into a gear. And then the second year is when you really take off. Well, if you only got one year or one and a half years, it's hard to do that. So I just think the, the way things are going, it's going to be hard for Oregon to get both those guys. Next one from at Robbie Parnes with numbers being low this year, which by the way, Matt was just talking about any chance Mario Cristobal can convince Rojo. That'd be Robert Johnson, Oregon's track coach to let Isaiah Satania use a track scholarship spot. I know football always has more spots and usually takes them, but maybe this is an exception question mark. Is it possible that track not football is his priority? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, quite a bit to unpack there for the first part question though. Um, I don't believe it's possible for, Satania's scholarship to be accounted for anything other than football. Um, yeah, if you're a two-sport star and you are on scholarship for one of those two sports, 
you're on scholarship for the one that comes first. So you can't go track and then be a walk-on for football. And the reason I say this is because Jordan Kent, you remember, he played three sports at Oregon. He was a track and field athlete plus an Oregon basketball athlete. He was on basketball scholarship at Oregon while also running track. And when he moved to over to the, when he started playing football, which would be his third sport at Oregon, his scholarship opened up uh, at Oregon and for basketball, which allowed the Ducks to sign Ivan Johnson because he, his scholarship shifted over to football. And that's, it's a rule that's in place to prevent power five schools yep. uh, like Oregon um, but originally when it was made for like USC, for Alabama, for Texas to prevent them from finding 15 football players that are really good athletes and stashing them on the track and field team or stacking them on the baseball team and those sports paying the scholarships, but the football team using them. So if, if Robbie Snelling is going to come to Oregon and he's going to play football and he's going to play baseball. Or if Isaiah Satagna sticks with his commitment and he's going to do track and field and he's going to do football at Oregon, they're both going to be football athletes first. It's why Eric Armstead was a football athlete while also joining on the basketball program. It's why JTT was going to be a football athlete with the option to walk on for men's basketball. Yeah, as Matt said, the concept there being basically you're, 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 I, I think it was USC specifically like 30 years ago that was starting to like just toss a couple of guys that were kind of fast on the track team and say they're sprinters, not counting towards the football team that, you know, allowed them to have more than the, the 85. So that's not a possibility, Robbie. Now, the other parts here, um, or at least the third question here, is it possible that track not football is his priority at Oregon? Well, some of the background here with Satania is that both his parents are Olympic track athletes. In fact, his dad is one of the head coach. I think it might be the head coach at Texas. Um, parents met, I think, at LSU back in the 90s as track athletes. So there is a, you know, this is a kid who probably was working on his track, you know, his ability to clear hurdles, his ability to get the right takeoff on long jumps, his, you know, his um, start out of the blocks before he was working on running football routes. So I think there is, a, a reasonable question, Robbie, about where his priorities are. I will also say that unless he like full on gives up football, which I don't expect he would, I think he can still be a, a really valuable part of both programs. Um, you know, you think about a uh, Robbie Ashford in fo football and baseball that just didn't work out football and baseball. There's a little bit too much overlap there. I think, I think football and track there could in theory be a little bit more opportunity to make that work. I think of a guy like Devin Allen, from, you know, about half a decade ago, who obviously has become an Olympic athlete. He was a really good receiver on the football field as well. I think he was like 600 yards and, you know, six to eight touchdowns his sophomore right. season before getting hurt, um, you know, going into the next year. So I, I think this is a thing that could, in theory, work, even if like you quote unquote say, you know, his first love is track, his second love is football. I don't think that precludes him from being a really good football player. And in fact, you go watch his highlights and that's it shows somebody who can certainly do both. And there's a reason why he's rated the way he is as a football player, as well as a track athlete. Third one from at Prince puddles. Cristobal has Oregon recruiting at an elite level. However, teams like USC have done the same before, but fallen short with the results on the field is Cristobal's ability to recruit top assistant coaches and overlooked key to competing for a title hashtag. It's I think what 
Prince is getting at here is, is, is it possible that, that Cristobal needs a little help from some of these elite assistant coaches to get there in terms of a coaching perspective? I don't know if that's true or not, but I will say that like from an assistant coaching staff, um, you know, we, we talk about Mario Cristobal as a recruiter of student athletes, but you're right. His ability to recruit assistant coaches is, is probably just as valuable. And I think speaks to the fact that this is something that is real and that he's able to commit, convey that and communicate that to coaches. Um, I don't really buy into teams falling short with elite talent under Mario Cristobal, given the fact that they won the Pac-12, Pac-12 championship the last two seasons and played in big bowl games. I would, suggests that probably the success in the field the last two seasons runs counter to the narrative that he can't coach on the field. Now, is it perfect? Does he not make mistakes? Absolutely not. I think some of the end of game decisions making in the past we've seen has been somewhat questionable. I think a couple of times we've seen him get pretty conservative in terms of punting the football or, or going for it on, on short yardage spots where you could in theory, maybe kick a field goal. And maybe some of that had to do with the lack of, you know, confidence in said kicker, but I, I don't think, and Matt, maybe you disagree, I don't think Mario Cristobal is a, a bad on-field coach and elite recruiter. I think that's a narrative that gets tossed around, frankly, largely by rival yeah. schools um, to try to recruit against him. So, um, like, I don't think this is a USC scenario where, where you're going to see them stack together all these elite classes and, and, and underachieve because Oregon hasn't really underachieved under Mario Cristobal. I know last year was a wonky year, but I'm kind of writing that off as, Hey, they still won the conference championship. A lot of things went wrong. Um, things will be better in 2021 because you look at 2019 and there's, a, I, I think a lot of question marks, a lot of concerns about what kind of a coach he was and what kind of a, a staff he assembled. I thought those were answered in 2019. And, and frankly, I don't think going into 2021, I'm not concerned about Mario Cristobal as a coach. Man, I, I think there are some areas he could grow in, but I don't necessarily think this is a case in which it's, wow, he's way over his head. He's only winning because the conference is down and he's a really good recruiter. And he's not maximizing the potential um, out of his team. Like, I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think we are seeing player development. We are seeing coaching development. We are seeing the the growth of this program, the, the trajectory of this program climb every year under crystal ball and you don't do that unless you're a good coach and you know like i i think a lot of people criticize him for the play against um stanford in, in 2018 when cj Ferdell fumbled but the reality is is that was the right decision to make and a fluke thing happened he fumbled the football and they still didn't lose they the game got from that because of that game i mean now it opened up the door for overtime, but it wasn't like, hey, this happened and they lost the game because of this one particular play. No, that's not the case. Oregon's defense still had an opportunity to get a stop, and Oregon's offense still had an opportunity to score to extend the game again, and they just didn't do it. So, you know, I, I, I think he's going to continue to impress people, and the biggest, I, I think the biggest th sign of a good leader and someone that's really good uh, is a personal growth, but B also surrounding yourself with people that are elite in what they do. And crystal ball has shown that every year he's gotten better as a, as an in-game head coach. And every year he's, he's made the staff better by going out and hiring really good assistants. 
And I think the assistant part, just one more thought here before I jump on to the next one is important. And I, I think one of the things that, and I know we've talked about it and I've written it. I don't know how, when I said in the podcast last was that you just look at the people that make up his staff and almost everyone is overqualified for their position. You know, you look at the, right. the coordinators, both Joe Moorhead um, and Tim Druder were head coaches in the last couple of years and somewhat successful as head coaches too. I think the I don't think Moorhead got a very fair shake at Mississippi State, and DeRuder had a couple of really great seasons at Fresno State as a head coach. You look at some of the position coach, and a lot of them, like a Brian McClendon, the receivers coach, he was an offensive quarter coordinator not that long ago. Jim Mastro did the same thing at Nevada, and he coaches your running backs. Um, I think Rod Chance was coaching at, at, a, at an FCS school, but was still he was a defensive a coordinator. coordinator. Yeah, he was a defensive coordinator. So you've got people that are positioned across the staff, and I might be forgetting a name or two that was you know elevated from a, a position previously. Um, and is now coaching, uh, you know, as a position coach. But it, it's a staff comprised of people that are basically more qualified than their positions. And I don't think that's by mistake. And again, that's why, I, like, do like do I think Mario Cristobal, if he had no help at all, and his staff was comprised of high school caliber assistant coaches, would do very well? Probably not. But I don't think you would. I think you'd say the same thing about Nick Saban, and frankly, probably almost every coach in the country. But the reality is Mario Cristobal understands what he needs to do to win football games. And I think that right there and, and has gone out and, and surrounded himself with people that are very, very equipped to do so. And I think that right there speaks to his leadership and his understanding and vision for the program, because, you know, it maybe it would be easier to surround yourself with guys who don't have a lot of experience doing this. Maybe they would in that instance, uh, you, you would feel more comfortable and confident in the power dynamic, but Mario Cristobal certainly has surrounded himself with people who've done jobs that he is, you know, the job he's doing right now before and doesn't seem like frankly afraid or, or concerned about how that could impact him adversely instead is focusing on how that can help him win football games. All right. Next one from at Snyder Jordan. Does Cristobal play the first game against Fresno state vanilla or expect them to be full go with play calling so they can improve any mistakes? What would be more beneficial to have success against Ohio state hashtag odds and audibles? get this question i think like every year don't we matt of like mm -hmm. especially when there's a big non-conference game looming um do you think it really matters ultimately like i don't know i mean i i don't think they're going to come out like here's what i'll say i don't think they're going to come out and show absolutely nothing like they're not going to come out and run three different plays all game and that's going to be just like some really bland game plan against fresno state in part because I think Fresno State's pretty good. I've been writing about them and researching them. I think they have, honestly, offensively, they're going to give Oregon some, some, some issues. Their running back's one of the better running backs on the West Coast, regardless of conference. Their quarterback, Jake Kaner, was a quarterback at Washington. He backed up Jake Browning for a couple of years. He's been really good the last couple of seasons. Like, I don't think that's a walkover game where you can just come out here and be like, we're going to run these six plays you know, in whatever order over the course of the game and show nothing for Ohio State. Um, I also think maybe you keep a couple of things back. You know, you're not going to show every single play, but that's the way it is every season. You know, you only have so many plays over the course of a, of a game offensively. And so like in those, I don't know, 50, 60 snaps, depending on the, the pace of the game, like there may not be room to show all the fun things, the exciting things. And so like, I'm sure, I'm sure they're going to be things they keep back. I'm sure they're going to be wrinkles they keep back, but like, I also don't think you're going to come out there and see them play a very, very base basic game. I think they're going to probably vary it a little bit. And you're going to see some things that you saw a lot last season that's already on film and probably some some things that we haven't seen before and i think that's the way it's supposed to go here and again not to get too redundant but you only have a certain number of plays you can't really show everything in the first game anyway not to not to be very 
talking out of both sides of my mouth, but they are going to be as vanilla as they possibly can and yet still ensure that they win the game. Sure. Like they'll have, they'll have the full playbook available going into week one. And if they need, and if they need to show everything to win that game, they're going to show everything to win that game. It's a game of chess. How much can we, can we show or how little can we show and still walk away with a win? I mean, the expectation is, I think, for the Fresno State game is Oregon opens the year with Fresno State and the starters should be pulled at some point in the fourth quarter because the game is no longer in doubt. That, that could mean the second or third string group gets one series, and you know, offense and defense, and, and then the game is over. That, that could mean that the start of the fourth quarter, the first team offense and defense is off the field. And it's a, it's a quarter of a game in which the, the second and third teams at Oregon are getting run. Like I, that's the expectation for me at some point in this game, the first offense and defense for Oregon has to come off the field in the fourth quarter because the game is no longer in doubt. They've done their job. The game is won before the game is actually over. That's the expectation. Um, but they're, they're going to show, and look, there's also a strategy of, Hey, we want to show a, B and C. We want to keep D hidden, but then we also want to show the next four things in, in the playbook because we want Ohio state to prepare for all of this stuff. And we're not going to use any of it for the next week, but we have, but they have to, they have to prepare for it because we might run it. So, I mean, it's, it's a big game of chess right now. A lot of gamesmanship. I think another thing to, to consider here when you're talking about vanilla versus not vanilla, th- there's also the aspect of there will be a game plan specifically for what Ohio State does defensively. And that game plan may feature things that would not have worked or, or just simply weren't things that you really wanted to try against Fresno State. And so you may see some things there. Again, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't like the term vanilla. And maybe that's just me because I, I, I just think that sort of indicates that like, a team is coming out and doing showing absolutely nothing and, right. and, and doing absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. And it's just like straight, like you, what you would see like in a JV football game when they're just learning plays. Cause that's not going to be what it is. Um, but I definitely think you're going to see things that are different against Ohio state. If that's the question, like I definitely think you'll, you'll see some alterations. Like Matt said, like a lot of what you see these days offensively it, it, our option sort of plays where, and, and again, you, you hear option, you think of a quarterback and a running back and maybe a fullback running, you know, with the, with the ball and you're going to pitch it. I mean, option in terms of like, there is door X, Y, and Z. And you, you know, you show the play where X is an option and Y is an option and Z is an option, but you also maybe have another alter, you know, an alteration of that play where a couple different other, you know, letters are used. I did a poor job there of choosing the back end of the alphabet. I should have chose the first part because there aren't any letters after Z, Matt. <laughs> so I can't use those letters. Um, uh, but what I'm trying to say basically is like, I, I think Matt's right in terms of like, you can, you'll probably see them show some things and then build off it the next week. And then I also really just think there's going to be things you don't see against Fresno State that they'll use specifically against Ohio State. Oh, yeah. 100%. And, maybe, and maybe some things you see specifically against Fresno State that you don't see against Ohio State. But that's just how a lot of this works because it's matchup related as well as. Uh, dependent upon what you want to do offensively, and it's kind of your base scheme. All right, we'll wrap it up here, Matt. This question you are not aware of, so get ready. From <laughs> at Duck, Y-O Duck, do you think that the NLI, sorry, NIL will affect the use of the transfer portal? Increased use because of market size or decreased use because of ties to local businesses? 
hashtag odds and audibles. Matt, another thing that took place while you were away, I think, was the first day where the NIL was uh, yes. was put into motion. And the I'm not going to use the curse word, but the uh, crap show that ensued because it was just a lot of the next couple of days of going like, I don't know. I felt I mentioned this on last week's podcast of like, I'm not a business reporter. I don't know all the details of how all of this stuff works out. And a lot of it felt kind of over my head of like, okay, somebody is agreeing to this deal with Barstool. What does that even mean? Uh, this person is aligning with, uh, you know, another company. Okay, what, how, what does this mean? So I think what, what I'm saying in part is I want to communicate. I'm not an expert on this. And also that I think we're going to all be learning a lot over the next couple of weeks and months and probably years about best practices, how this works. I think eventually, like, I'm not going to be, Matt, maybe you agree with this. Like, are you going to be surprised if at 247, we have a full department, like dedicated to NIL, where we're, we're you know, we're, we're recapping this player signed here for this amount of money. It's probably years down the line. But like, I think this is going to be a huge part of, uh, of college football and college sports as a whole going forward. I just think right now for me, it's hard to know kind of what the impacts are going to be. Um, big picture because a lot of things are still in motion. I don't know. Like, do you, do you think, I mean, regarding the transfer portal and I guess the question, which maybe we should address because that's the point of the show. <laughs> do, do, you, do you, I mean, what, what, what's your like instinct on the transfer portal and how it might be impacted by the NIL? I do think it'll come into play a little bit, but I highly doubt like some guys looking at transferring his school because, hey, I'm not getting the NIL max, you know, I'm not getting the, the most out of my NIL possibilities that I could get because I'm not going here. Like, and I don't know if I would want that player on my team anyways. Like, if it's a case in where um, the guy's looking at your school just because, hey, like, the only reason I'm coming here is so that I can make the most money possible on the NIL. Like, right. that. The, the reason you should be coming here is is because you you want to win championships, you want to get good education, and the benefit of both of those is if you succeed in both, is you also will profit off your name, image, and likeness. Like I view as the name, image, and likeness thing as a, a beneficiary of success, um, a a something that happens when you have high level success at the place that you're at, like you still have to perform. You still have to be a good athlete. You still have to be um, marketable. Like you just don't show up and all of a sudden get thrown gobs of money. Like you still have to be good and you have to be on a winning team. Like, like, like let's say Oregon goes eight and five, four or five, six, like seven years in a row, eight years in a row. Phil Knight's not going to just all of a sudden say, you know what? Like I love guys that are just, you know, I love to support a program that's mediocre and is just plateaued and is stuck in this average rating. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to shell out a hundred grand or six figures, whatever he gave to KT just because like, that doesn't make sense. Phil Knight didn't get to a point in his career and his life from a business standpoint where he can afford to make these kinds of investments just because he wants to better something like Phil Knight's doing this to help Oregon and to help athletes at Oregon. But he's also doing this because he wants to make money. He wants to benefit himself as well. I like get there's, there are benefits benefits for him to be doing this. You know, like you don't become as successful as Phil Knight is in the business world 
by just going against business practices and hope it works out. Like, so I, I don't think the NLI is going to, the NIL is going to be this pusher of transfers. It's going to help. It's like a secondary thing. It's not a primary thing. One twist I wanted to ask, cause I, I, I thought of this a couple of days ago, um, following KT's a couple of what looked to be pretty, um, he's setting himself up well with a couple of these deals, yeah. not specifically KT, but like, because I think he's going to go pro because his draft stock is where it is. But could you like in theory, and again, we're just, again, early days talking about this stuff, but I, I just an interesting thought I had of, could you see a player who's like a fringe draft prospect? Who's a junior got, he's got eligibility left, but could you see a situation where he's like on the fence where, but where the NIL money actually maybe is a deciding factor of like, huh, I could actually still stay at Oregon and make, a sixth or a fifth of, or whatever the number is. I don't know how big these numbers are going to get compared to a rookie contract in the NFL, but could you see a scenario where like that could actually not talking transfers, but that could actually stop a player from going pro or, or at least benefit Oregon in terms of, Hey, I could stay at college. I'm not sure where I'm going to get drafted, but I can stay at college. And, and at least by being here, I'm going to make six figures, which is, which is a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good i guess uh secondary option i mean i think it helped oregon basketball this year with with dior johnson mm. like that was a guy that was considering going to the nba or the g league directly out of high school right and then the the nil goes into effect and it's like hey i could make a million dollars through endorsements i have no idea if he's lined up anything yet or not but i could make six figures maybe seven figures uh of, of endorsements and the nine to 12 months that I'm at Oregon or I'm associated with the Oregon basketball program. And I get the, all the benefits of playing at Oregon because let's also be real here. Like from a, from a basketball standpoint, playing college ball at a power five high major or a blue blood basketball program, like a Gonzaga um, an Oregon, an Arizona, a Duke, a Kentucky. You know who I'm talking about. Right. Playing basketball at those schools is a hell of a lot better than going to the G League and making $250,000 a year, but you're having to ride buses to games. You're having to ride buses to hotels. You're, you, you don't fly charter. You don't get the gourmet meals. You don't get the gourmet food travel. You don't get all the benefits that, that come with playing at college because now it's a business. And while college athletics is, is a business to a degree, it's also about we have a million dollars in our budget. We need to spend a million dollars. Or if we don't, we're going to have to cut back the next year because it's, well, why didn't you spend your budget? You went under budget. So that now you can, the expectation is you can go here pro ball. It's, we need to take care of our players, but we also need to do it at the cheapest way possible. Like in the G league, that's what you get is you get bus rides and you don't fly charter and you, you don't have these gourmet meals that are set up for you. So I think that, the NI the NIL is going to help athletes where it, where if it's like a I, I my family or I could really use this money 
I'm going to go pro even maybe I need one more year to benefit myself. And, you know, and I could go from, if I came back to school, I'd go from a seventh round NFL draft pick to a third or fourth round NFL draft pick. Cause I have one more year of development, a better year of, of improving my body type and improving my skill, but I need the money for whatever reason. Now, you know, I'm in a position where I need, I need this money now. And the NIL could come in and kind of bridge that gap and you get the best of both worlds. You get some money that you need, that you need, but at the same time, you're, you're still in school and you get all the benefits to continue to improving uh, your, your draft prospects. I'm really excited for what the next year or two holds for this because it is totally uncharted waters, um, completely uncharted. <laughs> we have no idea what, I mean, I guess this has kind of been taking place behind the scenes illegally for a while. But now that this has sort of been legitimized, I think it's a really positive thing. I know some folks don't agree with that, but I think what we're going to see over the next couple of years is, is this work itself out. And there might be some kind of ups and downs and some not so beautiful moments where there's some stuff that's sort of, sort of questionable out there. But I think eventually when this is all, when there's some sort of better, I guess, regulation nationally of how all this stuff is supposed to work, because right now it's all kind of scattered and set up based upon different states and whatnot. Um, I think we're headed to this being a really awesome part of college football. I think, again, I think there's going to be some moments in the, in the, in the short term, the first couple of years that maybe are the, that are questionable that, that maybe kind of tick some fans off of, of rival schools. So, right. I'm with you. Uh, I, I think it, it's, it's going to be a case where it's going to be a little bit uncharted waters for a little bit. And until we get there, you know, it's going to be crazy, but ultimately I think this is for the benefit of the sport benefit for the athlete and it'll help colleges too. Yeah, no, I think it'll help. A lot. I think it'll help schools like Oregon specifically quite a bit for obvious yes. for obvious I, agree. I agree. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the odds and audibles podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to the show. And until we talk to you, On the next one, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan.